0: Right, you're rolling. Hi there, my name is Shoshana and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. When settlers set out for the northern midwest, it was more than loading the kids in a picnic basket in the family van. Having established in episodes one and six how land to settle was purchased and how news was transmitted between the American frontier and the east coast, there was the trouble of transport to be solved. In episode one, we saw that some settlers actually walked to Ypsilanti from New York State in the 1820s and 1830s. In this episode, we will learn about two avenues for the less hardy. Jerome Drummond is a clerk at the Ypsilanti District Library working at the Michigan Avenue location and is a member of the Ypsilanti Historical Society and the Genealogical Society of Washtenaw County. He majored in history in college, earning his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan, Flint, has taught introductory genealogy classes at the library, and is writing a biography of Charles Rich Patterson.
1: Thanks for having me back, as always. Your podcast is really starting to develop into something. Even the most recent events you cover usually feature actual participants in the event. They'll be primary sources for historians of the future to use. I am aging, but I wasn't contemporary of the people I cover.
0: <laughs> so today we're going to talk about getting around in the early days of Ypsilanti.
1: As we saw in episode one, many of the settlers of the city of Ipsilanti from the east coast came overland on foot by Indian Trail or by boat from Buffalo, New York, across Lake Erie to Detroit, thence up an Indian Trail or up the Huron River. We also saw that a significant segment of the country was not interested in the financing of roads as national works. The original states had established roads or built canals themselves within their own borders for their own purposes and were reluctant to finance any federal construction unless it benefited their state directly.
0: I know that Michigan Avenue, which goes all the way to Chicago, took some years to complete after it was surveyed in 1825 by Orange Risden, as we heard about from you in episode one. So what was the common experience of coming here from the East Coast in the earliest days?
1: As I've said, I like to let the people of the past speak for themselves. We have a couple of accounts that were written down that we can use. The first is called A Tour from the City of New York to Detroit, and was written by a man named William Darby, whose explicit purpose was to report on the quality of lands and the state of development of property west of New York City to Detroit. Who traveled on a schooner named the Zephyr in 1818. Speculators, farmers, and adventurers of all kinds were interested in this information. The Erie Canal, which would be the main conduit for travel and immigration to Michigan, would not be finished until 1825, but a part of it, then called the Great Western Canal, could be used to help get the traveler to Buffalo, New York. From there, a schooner could take you along the southern shore of Lake Erie to the Detroit River. Depending on the weather, the schooner took about 12 days to traverse the distance, stopping at each port on the southern side of the lake.
0: A schooner is a type of boat, right? What makes a boat a schooner? A schooner
1: usually has two masts, a main mast with a larger sail and a foremast with a smaller sail. It may have more masts, but it always has these two masts in the mix as I understand it. A schooner is usually a mid-sized ship which makes it fast and light on the water, yet capable of carrying appreciable cargo or passengers. Darby notes that a large steamboat, the locally famous Walk in the Water, is being built at the time he is traveling, and by the time that the book is published, Walk in the Water has shown that it can make the distance between Buffalo and Detroit in 48 hours traveling express. Most of the time it will be calling at ports along Lake Erie, loading and unloading passengers and cargo and so won't make that speed, the trip perhaps eight days or more, but it could, and will be faster and more reliable than sailing ships. Darby leaves from Buffalo, New York, which he describes as follows. Like most other new towns, Buffalo is composed in great part by one street following the course of the road towards the eastward, though the town itself lies very nearly in a north and south direction. A few others cross the main street, but are but little improved but very little appearance remains of the destructive rage of war. Most of the houses are rebuilt, but as in Kingston, some vestiges still exist to attest the fury of invasion. Many good and convenient, and some elegant dwellings and storehouses have been erected since the termination of the last war. Three or four excellent inns, and many decent taverns, offer their accommodations to the traveler. You may like to know that Orange Risden was apparently one of the surveyors of Buffalo. The rage of war that Darby is referring to are the effects of the war of 1812 when the British burnt most of the town down. Note here that Darby recommends the inns and taverns in town. Taverns mainly sold food and drink, while inns sold the same thing, but also offered sleeping quarters, but they often overlapped in function. They were the local entertainment and social centers in town, and your informal news source for local news, but also an important conduit for information from both ends of the journey, the beginning and the destination. You may recall from episode six on newspapers that it took newspapers time to develop an audience sufficient to support them, and here is a principal source of that audience. In many small towns at the crossing of major roads, you may see today amongst the other houses a larger than usual house, wooden and usually oblong, with more windows than you would expect for a house in a row, placed at regular intervals, and that is often the survival of an old inn. As always, and in our own time, hospitality success is location, 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 and a crossroad is the place. Darby continues, Approaching the mouth of the Detroit River, the shores on all sides are low. No land is seen that rises to any considerable elevation above the water. Huron River of Lake Erie enters from Michigan Territory, where the lake is so contracted as to render it a suitable point to commence the name of the strait, though no perceptible current appears below the bottom of Bois Blanc Island. Darby notes that there are three rivers named Huron emptying into Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair, which strikes him as odd, so he refers to our Huron River as Huron River of Lake Erie. Just as the name of Detroit was, Le Detroit de la Cairie, the Strait of Lake Erie, and the Huron River, in fact, shows up that way in other land records. Bois Blanc Island is what we know today as Bablo. Here then is his impression of Detroit upon first view, which is echoed so often in other accounts that I assume it to be true. Quote In coming up the Strait, when the woods of Grosille are cleared, both shores exhibit lines of farmhouses interspersed with orchards and gardens. The settlements on the United States side continue up the riviere Ecorse and Rouge, which, together with those along the shore of that strait, present a country in a high state of culture. The Canada shore is not less improved than that of the United States. Farm follows farm upon both banks, which, with the houses, windmills, and vessels on the strait, afford a fine picture of agricultural and commercial prosperity.
0: I heard that Detroit once had windmills.
1: The windmills here were just like the ones in France at the time, I believe. It's too bad they fell out of favor as I think they'd be pretty cool to see today. Farmers for miles round would bring their grain here to be milled into flour for themselves and for market. Detroit, as the hub of transportation between Michigan Territory and the East Coast, will experience growth on that account just as New York City and Buffalo did. A market in milled flour grew up as a consequence. We'll talk about milling in another episode. To give you a flavor of traveling to Ypsilanti a decade after Darby, here are some passages from the diary of the intrepid Mark Norris, as reproduced in Chapman's History of Washtenaw County on page 1114. Mark Norris is a very important figure in the history of the city, one of those active geniuses to whom we owe a great deal. I had the pleasure of meeting with some of his charming descendants who visited the city in 2018 and were given a special reception by the Ypsilanti Historical Society at their museum on Huron Street. A number of lovely oil portraits of Mark Norris and his family are on exhibit at that museum. Mark Norris writes, quote, July 9th, 1827, left Buffalo on steamer Marie Antoinette, Captain Whittaker for Detroit, which was reached July 16th, only a seven days passage. So you see in this entry that the travel time from Buffalo to Detroit is greatly reduced from Darby's schooner days, and because the steam power affords constant motion as opposed to sails, a travel schedule can be predicted and relied on. Here you see even in this early date in the Republic's history, a dominant drive for faster, bigger, and better. Quote, July 18th, after waiting a day for the stage, I started on foot for the interior. Walked as far as Spring Wells, when I took a due west course of about six miles. Crossed the Rouge, a sluggish, dark, muddy stream with plenty of rich land on either side, and rich in fever and ague, too, I should judge. Traveled about 24 miles. Stopped all night at Andrew's Tavern on Togus Plains. I don't know where Togas Plains were but Springwell's was just east of Dearborn. 24 miles? It's strange, isn't it? In our world today, no one walks 24 feet. What is ague? Ague often means just fever, but I think perhaps Mark Norris here is referring to malaria. Malaria in Michigan? I know. It's not something you would expect. When I first heard that malaria had existed historically in Michigan, I thought it must be a mistake. But malaria is known all through the Midwest, as well as the South. You can still get malaria in Michigan today. To continue, quote, Ypsilanti, Friday the 28th, have spent most of the day in viewing the village. Nature and art have combined to make it a place of business. It is situated on the Huron, nine miles below Ann Arbor, and four miles above the landing, where boats of 20 tons burden arrive from the lake to unload. Land is already valued very high. Mark Norris sees the business potential of Ypsilanti just as Lucius Lyon and Augustus Woodward did earlier. The landing referred to here is Snow's Landing, where later there was a town called Rawsonville, as in Rawsonville Road. Did you ever wonder where Rawsonville is and why Rawsonville Road doesn't take you there? It's at the bottom of Belleville Lake, submerged when the lake was created by damming. It just didn't have the pluck of Ypsilanti. <laughs> The boats mentioned were flatboats, and they went up and down the Huron River as far as Detroit, polled by a crew of men. They would take agricultural products down to Detroit and bring back needed merchandise.
0: I can imagine going down the river, but what do you mean to say that they pulled the boat upstream? And what exactly is a flatboat?
1: Well, a flatboat is a glorified raft, a very minimal platform. And I did say polled pushed by the crew with long poles that reached to the bottom of the river and which had a metal piece at the end to give the pole weight and durability. When we talk about these physical activities that the early settlers performed, we have to admire their fortitude. The Huron River wasn't dammed at this point, and the small difference in elevation between the river's beginning in Oakland County and its end in Lake Erie, along with its meandering form, suggests that the current was not very fast. But still, that's not a job I would like to do. Mark Norris continues, quote, August 6th, left Washington for Detroit, traveled to the Rouge within six miles of Detroit, retired to bed very much fatigued, but the mosquitoes would not let me sleep. They attacked on Larboard and Starboard and raked me from stem to stern. I fought them until my patience, if not my ammunition, was exhausted when I arose and prepared for flight. Started about 12 o'clock for Detroit. The first three miles I met with no incident worth mentioning, after which I was assailed by an army of dogs at every house. Arriving at Detroit, I went to the inn, where, after receiving a long lecture from the landlord for being out at that time of night, I was permitted to go to bed again, and slept until a late hour the following morning. Men, who are not pioneers, are allowed in hotels now, minus a landlord's lecture. The dogs were kept for hunting but also to sound the alarm if strangers arrived. Many people keep dogs for this reason today, to alert them to people on their property, as security for person and property, as part of the enduring relationship between humans and canines. So travel by water was the mode of choice for entering Michigan in the first four decades of the 19th century. Some canal building was done here, but those projects withered away in the face of overland transport such as was afforded by roads and rails. Building a road for overland travel on foot, by horse or by stagecoach, is simpler, faster, and less costly to build than canals. But before real paving in modern vehicles, it is much more costly to move goods over land compared to water. As with air travel today, though, you need a vehicle to move from the airport to the final destination. So roads were needed to move from the port inland. Many of the early roads in the United States were originally Indian trails. If you travel on the East Coast, you will find long, meandering roads which were originally this, simply repurposed. The Native Americans didn't conceive of land ownership like the British. A path took you to a lake, a river, a hunting ground, a trading post, etc. For the British, the road took you to owned land, a different purpose. I mentioned in episode 1 that land west of Pennsylvania was divided for sale by a system called the Public Land Survey System, or PLSS, which divided land into squares and rectangles. This was very geometric and regular. The East Coast, though, was divided by the older British system of meets and bounds, which formed very irregular divisions and oddly shaped lots, often defined by natural features. So, very often here in Michigan, you find many straight roads that move east west or north south along the survey lines. They are oriented according to the PLSS because they are built after the survey with the intention of reaching a property. The first large federal road project of our young republic was called the National Road or Cumberland Road and was planned to connect the Potomac River to the Mississippi and beyond. For those entering the United States at Baltimore, it took you almost to St. Louis which is often thought of as a gateway to the West for the middling part of the country. You did not have to go through the port of New York to enter the United States in the 19th century. Lots of people came through Baltimore, Boston, Philadelphia, etc. This road was never completed, though. After the Panic of 1837, federal funds for the National Road dried up and it ended at Vandalia, Illinois. Today, U.S. Highway 40 traces this road from Cumberland, Maryland, to Vandalia, Illinois, and continues past there through St. Louis and then all the way to California. US 40 is the descendant of the National Road in lots of ways. Besides opening up the West for settlement and real estate speculation, some roads were built as postal roads, that is to expand the reach of news and report, while others were designated military roads to expedite troop travel to defend the United States or to annex territory. As I said in episode 1, the federal government was anxious to expand and create strong defenses for the nation. A federally constructed military road in Michigan Territory followed an Indian trail and it connected the town of Detroit to Chicago. It is Michigan Avenue in Detroit and was known as the Chicago Road in Washington County. Where it enters Chicago, it is known as Michigan Avenue once more. A newer version of the road is U.S. Highway 12. The Michigan Avenue was an ace in the hand for the future Ypsilanti. It is said, and I believe it's true, that this is why Woodrush Grove faltered and why the town of Ypsilanti eclipsed it. The avenue crossed the Huron River at a fine resting point on many a journey from Detroit to the rest of the state. It afforded a convenient place to rest and restore a traveler with markets and lodging. When we say road, of course, It was unsurfaced and could turn into a quagmire of muddy ruts as it was well known to do in its earliest years, but it was the best to be had and afforded travel on foot, on horse, in wagon, and on the public conveyance called the stagecoach. The stagecoach was much as they are seen in western movies. Most of the baggage rode on top of the coach with the driver who drove a team of horses. The post office used them to transport the mail. They were regular and dependable enough to post schedules in the newspapers. They were faster than pedestrians and wagons. Two maps from the Library of Congress, one dated 1827 and the other 1833, show the progress of road building. The 1827 map shows a road running down the south shore of Lake Erie, mirroring the pathway of schooners and steamboats we saw earlier. It travels to Perrysburg, Ohio, crosses the Maumee River, and then turns to the north and splits at Detroit. The eastern half follows the shore of Lake St. Clair and the St. Clair River to Fort Gratiot. Fort Gratiot, for our listeners, is part of what is called Port Huron today, and its claim to fame was that its lighthouse was the first built in Michigan. And who do you suppose built that first lighthouse?
0: Was it Lucius Lyon?
1: Great job! (laughs) Yes, Lucius Lyon from episode one. The western half of the road we were talking about goes north to Pontiac and then on through the Flint River watershed to Saginaw. The map names the inhabitants of the lower peninsula west of the principal meridian as the Ottawa's and Miami's from the latitude approximately of Saginaw Bay down to the St. Joseph River. South of that line are the Pottawatomies. Other Native Americans shown are the Sauk and Fox in northernmost reaches of Illinois. Ann Arbor is listed on the map but not Ypsilanti. The 1833 map, just six years later, verifies the earlier roads and shows new ones, particularly Michigan Avenue from Detroit to Chicago. Indian villages and trails are also marked. Ann Arbor exhibits roads spreading out in all directions. In fact, more roads than any other population center in Michigan. So it has established itself as a central stop west from Detroit. The printing of its name is larger than Ypsilanti's. It would appear at this point in the race Ann Arbor is pulling away. Transportation hub was the ticket for Chicago's prosperity just as New York City prospered as the entry point to America and the Erie Canal. Industrial products flowed out of Chicago and Detroit to settlers on the plains. Chicago became the master of agriculture with superior mills and stockyards. Lucius Lyon proposed a road building program in 1850 as we heard in episode one alluding to the success of earlier programs. Lucius Lyon never got what he wanted, though. Most of the population of Michigan is found south of Saginaw Bay because the best agricultural land is found there. Above the bay, the land is very sandy, and in our period of time it was heavily forested, and that forest was being cut down to furnish the wood to build the clapboard houses of Detroit and Chicago and the farms of the plains. So the development of roads, notwithstanding Mr. Lyon's wishes, was a slow process. You had to have some roads for military purposes, to connect to harbors, to transport lumber, and connect to lighthouses and the Sault Ste. Marie Locks. The only people interested in the interior of the northern Lower Peninsula were the lumbermen. Parts of these roads which ran through swamps and wetlands were built up with logs about 16 feet long and 4 inches in width. These were laid perpendicular to the direction of the road, usually on a wooden substructure for evenness and support. These were referred to as corduroy roads because they resembled the rib-cord construction of corduroy fabric. They were kidney-jarring in stagecoaches of that time. An improvement over corduroy roads were the plank roads, so-called because they were built with planks and afforded a smoother ride. Like the corduroy road, though, they wouldn't last long and were more expensive to build because more shaping was required of the wood. Investors were allowed to incorporate plank road schemes through legislation in 1848. Three nearby were the Dexter and Michigan Plank Road, the Ann Arbor and Michigan Plank Road, and outstandingly from our viewpoint, the Detroit Saline Plank Road, which included the part of the Chicago Road, Michigan Avenue, or U.S. Highway 12 that runs through Ypsilanti. Plank roads were allowed to charge tolls to maintain the roads and produce a profit which raised the ire of some. Doris Milliman, late of the Ypsilanti Historical Society, wrote in 1989 that there was a toll booth of this sort on West Michigan Avenue and that Congress Street was extended from Mansfield to Hewitt directly by the citizenry to allow users of Michigan Avenue to bypass the toll booth. Doris wrote, quote, the Toll Company retaliated by putting up a branch gate to the west, one-half mile. Evan Bagol, a farmer, angered by this action, took an axe and a team, smashed the gate, and dragged it away. He was arrested and fined, but the Grange stood the expense of the escapade, and the incident is credited with being the end for the Toll Gate." End quote. This story, if true, illustrates again the unwillingness of Americans to pay fees and taxes for public services, even those they directly benefit from. We will see this theme repeated often.
0: The state of transportation in this time is rather uncertain. I can get in my car and travel to Detroit in 30 minutes.
1: Really? No orange barrels? I haven't been able to get to Detroit in 30 minutes in years.
0: Thank you for enlightening us, Jerome. It's always such a joy to speak with you. I'm excited to learn more. Surely what was covered today isn't the full extent of your knowledge on the matter.
1: Thanks, as always, Shoshana. I shall present a second part to this story of transportation in the future, which will center on the railroad. Ypsilanti was reputed to have one of the most beautiful stations on the Michigan Central Railroad. To look at what is left of it, the eroding brickwork and reduced dimensions, makes this difficult to appreciate. Perhaps, one day, it will
0: live again. A special thank you to Sam Killian, for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at Shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time! Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to historian Matt Siegfried about the history of the United Auto Workers Union in Ypsilanti and the way its presence has changed the landscape of our community, both within labor and beyond. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.